Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. A desire to bring the truth to the forefront and a refusal to back down. The Roy Green Show continues. Great to have you back with us on uh, The Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Just want to tell you that tomorrow we're going to be speaking with the chairman of uh, the Eagle Spirit Pipeline in uh, British Columbia. It's being proposed. It's a $16 billion pipeline, and it has the backing of indigenous tribal leaders, chiefs, and it's gotten to the point where the pushback from Ottawa is so significant, and uh, what the... uh, what the uh, pipeline um, backers want done is they want the oil tanker ban lifted by Ottawa, but they've had to go to GoFundMe, a GoFundMe campaign to sue Ottawa over the oil tanker ban. This is a $16 billion pipeline. And uh, Calvin Helene will join me. He's a British Columbia lawyer, and he is the son of a hereditary chief. And Calvin's been on this program in the past. We've talked about his uh, Dances with Dependency books. It is Black History Month, and race and racial issues are at the core of a lot of the unrest that we find in this particular, it's a little early to say in 2018, but it's there, and it was there in 2017, and it seems to be at times just to be ramping up. We have the opportunity and the privilege to speak with Dr. Melba Patillo-Beals. She's an icon of the U.S. Civil Rights Movement. And uh, she was one of nine African-American students who, in 1957, confronted by armed National Guard troops and the Arkansas governor, integrated Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas. And uh, Dr. Patillo Beal's book is March Forward Girl, From Young Warrior to Little Rock Nine, Personal Memories of Early Childhood and the Hardships in the Life of African-Americans in the Jim Crow South. By the way, uh, Dr. Beale's book, Warriors Don't Cry, sold over a million copies. Dr. Beals, it's an honor to speak with you. My pleasure and blessing. Thank you. When you were a little girl in Arkansas, this is what people have to understand. You're a little girl in Arkansas in the 1940s. You feared the Ku Klux Klan, and you feared them because they were roaming the streets of your community almost nightly. Every night, my grandmother and mother would rush to the window and draw the shades, and uh, you'd you'd tone down any radio you had on, and you'd you'd close the doors, you'd pull anything off the front porch or anything out of the yard that looked as though you were doing something you shouldn't be doing or that you were happy or that you barbecued that day or anything that that looked as though, you know, you might be uh, their enemy. You'd get off your property, baby, because... You don't. You wouldn't want to face them, yeah. and you'd pull your. Sometimes people pull their street addresses in. Uh, you don't want any name on the mailbox. I mean, you know, there's all this stuff going on about preparing yourself to be, uh, well, actually invisible. So 
that whole thing about being invisible as a as a, as an African American, invisibility brought life. And that's what you needed in the 1940s in the South. You needed life. You needed visibility. And here you were forced to be invisible. How old were you at the time? And what was the impression? What's the impression it makes on a little girl? I was born in 1941. And uh, when I was just turning four, I said to my mother, where did I come from? And she said, uh, you came from Stork. Stork delivered you. We're blessed. And so I said, look, to myself, you know, alrighty then. I took a red wagon and I parked it out front and I sat in it. And they said, what are you doing? It's hot out here. The sun is bearing down. I said, well, you know, if the stork delivered me, he's going to come back and I'm going to flag a ride out of Little Rock. Because <laughs> I wanted to get Makes out sense. at any yeah. cost. Yeah. I knew at age three we were unwelcome. And you know, there's this, uh, I wrote this book to explain this three or four sentences in, in Warriors Don't Cry. And it says this, black folks aren't born knowing they're second-class citizens. No one bends over the crib and says, hey, this is how you got to behave, and this is what you ain't going to get in this life. These are the opportunities you're going to miss, and you're going to be treated like poop because your skin is brown, you know. They're going to they're gonna walk all over your blue suede shoes. Well, instead, you learn this. Instead, your self-esteem is stolen teaspoon by teaspoon day by day. And that's what was happening to me. At three, my parents and I would go to the grocery store. And everything was cool as long as we were at home or go to church, right? But when we went to the grocery store, these honorable people whose shoulders were square, who were educated, who were bright and thoughtful and articulate, became absolute slaves. They would curtsy. They would have these humble looks on their faces. They would yasa, no sir, no ma'am. They would, um, if you were standing in line paying for your groceries, let's say, and a white person walked up to you, you, you let them walk in front of you. There's, there's no such thing as gauging how long you're going to be at the grocery store because by the time everybody steps in front of you, it could be hours. And as a little girl, I wanted to come home to my dollies and my playthings. I didn't want to spend the morning trying to shop for meat, you know. And when you got to the... Um, when we got to the meat counter, the guy said, well, uh, Miss India, well, you know, she likes fresh things. She's an uppity. Because my grandmother, you know, they were selling their stale meat, their rotting meat to black people, and the black people were accepting it. And uh, my grandmother said, no, that's not happening for me. That's not happening at all for me. I, um, we're not doing that. And so um, she was called an uppity. That, that put her in danger, no less. She was a white uh, maid in White Lady's Kitchen for all of my young life. When you were five, you, you mentioned that you were, I mean, you're describing a life that is, I'm trying to wrap my head around it. I'm trying to understand how, how you function in a, in, a, in a reality like that. I understand why you say you want to be invisible with that sort of thing going on. But when you were, you said being in church was, uh, maybe gave you a little bit of uh, security, but you also at five years of age, you witnessed the Klan hang a black man uh, in a lynching in the church, correct? Mr. Harvey, and I remember uh, the thing I remember now. Wake me up sometimes in the middle of the night when I'm having a bad dream, and it's over that, because I remember his feet dangling in my face. I was five. I couldn't see his face because they had him uh, blindfolded. You know, they had his face covered. Um and I saw his feet dangling, and I heard the awful growling 
uh, pleading, begging, as they were they were strapping him up, and then the growling in his throat as they were actually hanging him. No help from the law. And how absolutely pleading his voice was, and and what he said, and how at the end of the plea, he just began to say, "Oh Lord, please," you know. Uh, we were. They, what do you mean help from the law? No, I know. We yeah. This is when I get, got pissed off because we were we were in church and probably all told there were seventy to eighty people of them, a lot of men in there. Right. And none of those black people did anything because they know knew if they did they'd be next. But it steamed me that there were five Klansmen around us, but there were seventy and eighty of them. So the first ten die, let them die, but get them. You know that's my attitude in life. Get it, get it, get it. And I don't know where all this came from as I analyzed who I was as a child, born December 7th, 1941. I was born on the day they bombed Pearl Harbor. I thought to myself all the while from the beginning, I thought, hey, I may die, baby, but you know what? You treat me like that, you go on down with me. And I don't even know as I examine who I was, where all this spit and fire came from, but I was a different child. I was bright to begin with, quite brilliant. Well, my mother was more brilliant. My brother had a genius IQ, joined later in her life to, uh, invited later in her life to join Minza. And she spoke six languages and was a teacher. My grandmother was just as bright. She read a Shakespeare all the time. She just had to clean people's kitchens and kowtow because at that point, uh, adult black women were not uh, especially educated. Dr. Beals, I have to. I was educated because my grandmother decided to educate her. I have to take a break. I want to ask you this question, though. There was there was nothing there from the law to provide you with any any security, any protection. It was a just it just wasn't there, right? Never. Uh. Uh-uh. The police are white, and probably they're in those uniforms in the day, but they riding with the clan at night. They're the same clan coming to your front door. That's number one. And number two, uh, they don't, you know, you're not worth it. You're thought to be less than. And I can't say that every single white policeman in Little Rock thought that way, but enough of them thought that way that they could physically threaten those that didn't. Okay, let me let me. Problem with racism. Let me take a quick break. Those who would dare to venture beyond, those who venture beyond, will get them. Dr. Beals, I'll come right back to you. Dr. Melba Patillo Beals. She's a civil rights icon in the United States. So when she's 16 years of age, she and eight other African-American teenagers, I don't know if they were all teenagers, she and eight other African-American children, uh, integrated Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas, confronted by National Guard troops, and uh, the governor was adamantly against any black children going to that school. We'll find out about how that day went and um, talk more with Dr. Beals right after this. You know, you hit the big leagues when you're a guest on his show. This is the Roy Green Show. I'm speaking with Dr. Patillo Beals, Dr. Uh, Melba Patillo Beals. She joins us from California, and her book is March Forward Girl, 
From Young Warrior to Little Rock Nine, personal memories of early childhood and the hardships of life in the Jim Crow South. Also, uh, Dr. Beale's book, Warriors Don't Cry, sold over a million copies. And uh, it's required reading in many colleges across the United States. Dr. Beale's 1957, you're integrating a high school where that was deemed to be, well, you tell me what it was deemed to be, but if I can back it up just a little bit, they were looking for volunteers to engage in this particular um, integrating of the high school. You volunteered for that. How did it go for you? What was the process? Well, first of all, they were sifting through the schools. In 1954, that decision demanded that schools Integrate. Okay. And as a result of that, Central High School in Little Rock, in general, Arkansas decided the way we get away with this is we only start with one school, and we do only a few people with one school. And so, um, therefore, they were sifting through. They were looking for African-American kids who had good grades, who were obedient, who were generally, you know, people that could be handled. But the other thing was, as they were doing that, they also sent a team of people out, ministers, doctors, lawyers, whatever, to tell the black community to visit personally your home and say, look, you can go if you want to, but, you know, that's not going to work for you. We go take away your other stuff. So there were two things going on simultaneously. Ultimately, they came up with three, with 116 children who lived in that area who were willing to volunteer. Now, whether or not these children got frightened or they were threatened, we don't know to this day. But that 116 ended up going down to nine. Central High School was ranked as in the top ten physical educational plants in the country. And many of the people who went there went to the Big Eight. So it wasn't just any old school. It was an academically adroit school to begin with. So that's how we got chosen to go. Mm-hmm. And when we got, when the woman walked through the room and said, if you want to go, and you live in the neighborhood, raise your hand, and here's a paper to have your parents sign. And I thought to myself, well, you know, hey, hey, baby cakes, I can, uh, I don't want to trouble my mother with that horrifying task. I'm going to sign my own. So I signed my own and turned it in. And, uh, you know, uh, okay, uh, that passed, and I, um, you know, went for a couple of years, and nothing happened. And then we were in Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, in 1957, the summer. I was actually 15, going to be 16 December 7, and uh, uh, there you go. Uh, they they heard over the television that these children were going to Central High School. So what was the reaction? And what was the reaction? And my mother said, "That's your daughter." They're talking about. And what was the reaction like in uh, in Little Rock? How did the people of Little Rock react to their high school being to that high school being integrated? Violently opposed to it. Uh, bad telephone calls, rioting, guns, uh, whatever you want to do. I mean, it was being done. And when you went there on that particular day, nine of you are going to school. Was the governor there? No, but we don't, you don't have to understand, we were not heroes and heroes that day. We didn't expect people to behave that way that day. We knew they were violently against it, but we were children. Right. I didn't expect, no one of us thought, you know, these people are violent enough, although I'd seen this man hanged in the church. Right. 
Uh, we never knew why he was saying. We thought, oh, geez, he must have done something really awful, you know. Point being, none of our parents were bright enough to know that this was a dangerous, deadly act to take, to put us in those schools, that everybody was going to suffer. Mm-hmm. They were going to suffer, and other black people were going to suffer. And so when we went there that day, in my case, there were a whole group of people there, and I was separated from the other eight. And I was standing in the back of a thick line of people, about eight deep, seven deep, something like that. And we were on tiptoes looking, the whole crowd was on the tiptoes looking across the street at this black, small black child, Elizabeth Eckford, would turn out to be one of our nine, who was being chased down by this mob. And, uh... We thought, well, you know, let's go help her. And then we realized, look, we're in as much trouble as she is in. Because this guy turned around and said, hey, you know, and then he said, he said, we got us We don't have to go across the street to hang somebody. And that was the beginning of our, uh, I would say, dramatic escape. We got home safely because my mother had been teaching me to drive. And I was running in front of her. And I jumped into the car. She jumped in. And I backed down the street faster than I had ever driven for it. And as I'm backing down, they're banging on the windshield, uh, pointing guns at me, ropes. Uh, Dr. Beals, I have about a minute left here. I'd love to talk to you longer than that, but we have about a minute left. When you look at the world today, are we any better off? Are we a lot better off? Let's put it that way. No question that we're better off. We're a lot better off than we were when I was a child. Uh, It has changed. Have we met the destination yet? Is this where we're going? Absolutely not. Until every single one of us is free, no matter what we look like or worship like, no matter what we eat, mm-hmm. no matter where we live, then none of us is free. Are we making progress properly? We are definitely making progress, because I don't know any black people that are willing to go back to where we started. And that poses a huge problem, because your next question must be, what are they willing to do not to go back? And so thereby, you, you, you find yourself in a position of understanding that these problems are solved with love, not with violence. Will you come back to the show? If you invite me. I will. Thank you. I most definitely will. Thank it's, you. And remember, love's the only answer. Nothing yep. is one with hatred and violence. Just love. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Beals. It's been a, an honor to speak with you. And I will invite you back. You do that. I appreciate it. And I will come. All right. All the best to you. Dr. Melba Patillo Beals. And uh, the book is March Forward, Girl, From Young Warrior to Little Rock Nine. It's an incredible, incredible story. And it's all real. You know, it's, it, it will open your eyes. We'll come right back.